This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. All right, good afternoon, Austin. We've got a wonderful show for you today. We're going to take a departure from all of the madness of politics, and uh, I hope you're all getting out there and voting, but uh, we're going to take this hour and we're talking about wine, wine in the capital city here in Austin, the amazing uh, events that we have. We've got in the studio Miriam Parker, who's the executive director of the Austin Food and Wine Alliance, wonderful organization. They have their upcoming Wine and Swine event, uh, which I am very excited about. And we're actually going to be giving away a couple of tickets, which we'll talk about in just a second here, so stay tuned for that. We also have Marta Delfa Mediavillas, who is from Catalonia, Spain. She is in Austin, living in Austin, and working for Torres Winery. So I'm sure that a lot of people have seen uh, the Torres wines around. We will hear from her later in the program, so stay tuned. Great, great to bring that riff down there. <laughs> so, uh, Miriam Parker, thank you so much for coming into the studios and talking about uh, the Alliance and uh, all of the things that you have going on. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Awesome. Um, so, uh, tell us just, I guess, a little bit about the Austin Food and Wine Alliance in case folks aren't really familiar, and then we'll then we'll get into the Wine and Swine event you have coming up. Okay, great. Well, you know, most of us, uh, most people in the community probably are more aware of us as the Texas Hill Country Wine and Food Festival, and so basically, you know, we have transitioned and now we're the Austin Food and Wine Alliance. We basically put on events throughout the year to raise money for our culinary grant program, which we reinvest back into the food community. And then we also have educational programming where we teach kids, high school kids about culinary careers and food businesses. So, yeah. yeah. So those, um, that scholarship, that, that grant, uh, that, that you're giving out, we're kind of in a, in a mid range. I think the, it's, uh, all of the applications are in and then you'll be announcing the winners, the, the recipients of the, of the scholarship. Yeah, I'm actually reviewing. I'm reviewing them right now. So it's kind of it's really exciting because you get to really see what's happening on a very uh, granular level, where you see all these really cool businesses, these really great nonprofits, people that are doing really cool things in our community. And so right now we're we're reviewing the applications, and then we have a group of judges that basically decides who are going to get the grants for that year, and then we announce it in December. Um, And it's it's always really exciting, and the people are so incredible, and we're just happy to be able to do that for our community. Give us a little. Um, a, a little insight into what kinds of uh, folks apply and, and, and receive the grants? Sure. You know, for us, you know, there's so many great ideas, but what we try to really kind of pinpoint are people that are doing things that are innovative in our food community and also people who are doing something to kind of give back and further uh, the growth of our community. Because um, that's really what it's all about, right. is kind of furthering what we're doing here and, and kind of excelling it. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and, and so, well, Cool. So then all of your events throughout the year kind of uh, work for that, raising money for that. Mm-hmm. And and so your next up and coming one is Wine and Swine, and that will be held on November 
20th, right? Yes, uh, yes. Tell us a little bit about uh, where it is and and who and, and the vibe. Yeah, you know, it's one of our most favorite events. I mean, it's a, it's a perfect afternoon in the Hill Country. It's from 1 to 4. We have it at Star Hill Ranch. Um, we have some amazing chefs from all over Austin. We actually brought a chef in from uh, New Orleans as well. And basically, they're going to be cooking pork-centric dishes, but with a New Orleans twist. Okay. You know, we're basically doing like a New Orleans takeover. So that's a new thing this it's year. It's a new thing. We just decided to kind of mix it up a little bit. And, you know, I think, you know, New Orleans is so relevant right now because you hear so much of what's going on with the flood. And we just really right. wanted to kind of bring some attention to the community as well. Um, and then also we're having some folks come in and do some like New Orleans style cocktails. We've got wines from like all over the globe. Okay. Um, and it's just kind of a really fun, you know, fun event. And it's great. Uh, it's just a great afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So for more information there, uh, go to austinfoodwinealliance.org. Yes. Right. And um, and wonderful. So we have uh, so you can get uh, more information and tickets are available uh, on on that website there and um cool yeah the new orleans vibe i mean new orleans is so hot right now in the craft cocktail scene mm. tell us a little bit about uh you know the personalities that are that are going to be there sure. yeah well we're really excited to have chris Hanna. um he's from french 75 in new orleans he's actually one of the best bartenders we we have in this country and he is um he takes a lot of pride he's a true craftsman and so he's going to be making a, a couple different cocktails the classic hurricane and then also he's doing a cocktail called the night tripper which is yeah. a, an ode to dr john John, who, as we all know, is very celebrated in New Orleans. And so he's going to be crafting that. And he's just a great person to kind of engage with. And, and you, I can't wait to try his cocktails. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, and, and again, the Star Hill Ranch is out at uh, 15,000 Hamilton Pool Road. Uh, so it should be a wonderful, what's the weather looking like? Oh gosh, you know, we've been so lucky. The weather has been just nice. I'm hoping because it's raining a little bit, it's going to be nice and crisp. It's yeah. just going to be really enjoyable. Right, so. right. And then other entertainment uh, in yeah, addition to the, the beverages? Yeah, we have the Gulf Coast Playboys. And so they're going to be playing and you know you know how that's going to be. Like it's just a New Orleans style brass band just kind of playing and, and people are I'm sure going to dance in the street and have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, so uh, we're giving away um, two tickets to yeah. uh, this event the Food and Wine Alliance's uh, Wine and Swine. Um, what, the, the, what we have to do, if you go on and uh, like uh, the my page, the Another Bottle Down Radio, uh, facebook.com sl- uh, slash Another Bottle Down Radio, and uh, uh, Austin Food Wine. Alliance.org, yeah. Alliance. Like, yeah, food, Austin Food Wine Alliance. If you like both of our pages, and then you also tag a friend in the post, um, so they can get really excited about the event too. Right. Then you enter to win. Then we get entered to win to win two tickets. Wonderful. Yes. Thank yes. you so much. Um, so so tell us a little bit about. So this is kind of the last event of the year, right? It is. And yeah. then what are some of your other annual events? You've been on the show before, but uh, you know, yeah. let's remind folks out there. Sure. Yeah. Um, we're already starting planning for our next event, Live Fire, um, which is going to be in April, and so that's going to be the, in the beginning of April, and so that's our more beef centric event, and it's a nighttime event, and so people are you're just going see a lot of fire, a lot of great beef dishes, <laughs> plenty of wine, spirits, cocktails, um, beer. Um, and so it's just kind of like a different vibe just because it's an evening time event. Right. Um, and then after that, we're going to be having our official Drink of Austin event that we do where we really celebrate the bartending community. Yeah. Um, and so we have really great bartenders cooking up really great cocktails. 
And then um, again, we're gonna have wine and swine, and then we always have like a little wine and dine event, with, you know, with a celebrity chef, and right, we kind right. of like to mix it up a little bit throughout the year. So yeah, wonderful, and and so it's 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 a great schedule, a great calendar, and um, yeah, stay tuned, uh, AustinFoodWineAlliance.org. Uh, any final thoughts? I mean, you've seen this the the whole beverage community in Austin really exploding right i mean you know for having an event focusing on craft cocktails mm-hmm. it's it's you must have seen uh the growth of the industry what's the growth of the industry from your point of view and and how tight-knit is everybody just really wanting to get out there wanting to you know give back to the community yeah you know it's funny it's i feel like every year there's always one aspect of the community that's really kind of thriving and growing so you know we've seen our, our craft beer community really thrive in the last couple years and grow exponentially so now you're seeing that with craft cocktails, distilleries. You're seeing a lot. We're seeing a lot more distilleries, um, and in the Hill Country, Dripping Springs especially. Right. And so that's really exciting to see and celebrate like Texas spirits. And so the thing about the bartending community, they're all very. It's very much like a family, and I think it's because they're in the trenches every day and they're missing holidays with their families. And so they're very supportive of each other. And so it's been really cool to yeah. see us being highlighted nationally, um, and, and people coming to, to right. really enjoy the cocktails that we have here. Yeah, that's interesting. You know. I talk about the growth of the mm-hmm. Texas Hill Country and the yes. wine scene there, but you know, there's also then this other uh, tourism industry of with, whereas you have great restaurants mm-hmm. that are popping up every day, and then the whole ancillary you know support community that goes all around that, and uh, and the, and you're it's great to be a kind of in the center of that. Right? Yeah, and then we also are starting to see uh, cideries, more cideries are kind of popping up, yeah. meaderies. So it's you're seeing a lot of interesting different kind of sections of the community kind of growing and thriving here yeah I think it's the entrepreneurial spirit that we have in Austin it really kind of motivates people they yeah have a, if they have a passion they just go for it and, and people I think are coming particularly f- to Austin for that that those opportunities mm-hmm. because they almost know it can happen and they'll find an audience that is into searching out local folks and supporting them exactly I mean I think if they, you have a built-in kind of fan base if people are willing to support you it's really easy to, to kind of establish yourself in that community yeah awesome um, again Miriam uh, Miriam Parker executive director of the Austin Food and Wine Alliance um, tell us uh, the information on one last time on um, on uh, wine and swine yeah November 20th it's on a Sunday it's from 1 to 4 at Star Hill Ranch off of uh, Hamilton Pool Road Excellent, excellent. And uh, if you uh, go on, like uh, another bottle down radio on Facebook, uh, like uh, Food and, and uh, Austin Food and Wine Alliance on Facebook, and get entered and tag somebody in your post. Uh, we'll be posting about it too uh, in just in just a little bit here, and uh, you will get entered in for a, a, a pair of tickets to the upcoming Wine and Swine. So Miriam Parker, thank you so much for being here. We hope to have you in uh, sometime soon to talk about more events than you got going on. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take a short break and uh, hear just a little bit of music, and we're going to hear a little bit of um, some underwriting announcements. We'll be back with Marta from Torres Winery, so stay tuned. Okay, we are back. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P 91.7 FM and koop.org. Uh, we're radio for people and not for profit. Uh, I love highlighting uh, folks like the Austin uh, Food and Wine Alliance and uh, all of the great community organizations that we have in the in the food and wine scene here in Austin. There's so much stuff going on, and it's wonderful to be a part of this dynamic community. Um, and uh, and wonderful. So thank 
thank you so much for, for, for tuning in. And uh, we've got live in the studio, Marta Delfa Mediavias, who has recently moved to Austin from Spain via Chicago. Uh, I think I got that right, right, Marta? Yeah, you got it completely okay. right. <laughs> and uh, so she has grown up in uh, Catalonia, which is in the northeastern part of Spain, and uh, uh, growing up amongst the vineyards. And now she is a brand ambassador um, of Torres Winery, which is a, a relatively wi- large winery in uh, in Spain. And we're going to get all the info on on Spanish wine from you, Marta, and 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 also the history of Torres, right? Excellent. Well, thanks. It's so great to have you here. Um, can you start off by just telling us a little bit about where you grew up and, and what wines they made uh, there in Catalonia? Yeah, so I was very lucky, actually, that I was born in uh, in the heart of the Penas region, so in Vilafranca del Panades. Yeah. Um, and uh, since I was born and raised in that area, it's like impossible not to fall in love with that landscape, right. uh, which is all like vineyards and olive trees. And we are pretty close to the sea as well. So it's really a unique area. And uh, obviously, Miguel Torres, it's uh, one of the main wineries there in the region. And it's it's an incredibly honor like to be able to work for them. Yeah, yeah. And so the Torres family has been uh, making wine for, for how many generations? Many generations now. Five already. generations. Five generations. The, winery was actually based uh, in Milafranca del Panades back in 1870. So we are talking about a long history. And uh, again, a family-owned business for five generations, it's not easy. But I guess their secret is how humble they are and how passionate they are and how much they love to do what they do. Yeah. Well, we'll delve a little bit into the history of Torres Winery a little little bit later in the show. But I want want uh, you to finish painting that picture of what what is going on in the Penedes region. Because um, I feel like... uh, uh, when when I mention Penedes to a bunch of wine lovers, they say uh, Cava, right, which is the sparkling wine of Spain. Um, tell us a little bit about Cava, and and is that what you kind of saw? What most of the folks out there are growing and and making. Can we start talking about cava? Yeah, of course. Okay. It's not the problem. We always love bubbles, so it's always fine. Right. Um, yeah, actually, that's uh, that's you're completely right. So the Penedes wine region might be more known for their cava production, but to to understand a little bit the situation, there is two main towns in the Penedes wine region. One is San Sadurní de Noya. Yeah. Which it's basically the capital. Say that again, one, one more time. San <laughs> Sadurní de Noya, <laughs> uh, which is basically the capital for for the cava, right. and then it's uh, Vilafranca del Panades, which is more known for their steel wines. So basically, all the cellars which are located in uh, the region of San Sadurní, uh, they might be producing more sparkling wines. Where I, while uh, the winery is located in Vilafranca del Panades, um, it's more about steel wine and also brandy which is also very, uh, very curious yeah and, and important for for Torres uh, what grape varieties are they um, planted what are planted there in that region actually the Penades wine region it's an amazing and I think kind of unique wine region because we have vineyards from the sea level up to 800 meters high which uh, allowed us to grape a lot of different grape varieties so we can grow from the traditional grapes like Macabeu Charelu and Parallada which are the three base grapes in the cava production even if we produce also steel wines with them but then we can also 
produce Kevustraminas and Rieslings and Pinot Noirs, which nobody will expect that in Spain. You wouldn't, yeah. So, so for folks out there who might not be, you know, super uh, knowledgeable about grape growing, so the cooler, the, so those grapes that you mentioned, Riesling and Gewurztraminer, those mm -hmm. are a little bit more what we would what we would call uh, cooler climate grapes. So. Uh, and even though you think of Spain and the coast there as being really warm, is it the elevation that really allows you to grow those grapes? It's the elevation and the fact that uh, what we call the upper Penades, which is those vineyards that goes from 500 to 700 meters high. And I apologize because I don't know how high in feet is that. that that's okay. Well, we, you multiply by three point something. So <laughs> we are not here to do the mathematics. That's why we are in the wine business. Right, right. <laughs> But basically what happens is that we have uh, some pre-coastal mountains and behind those mountains, the climate, it looks and it's pretty similar to Central Europe. Yeah. So that's why we can grow those cold climate varieties or typical uh, Alsace varieties or German varieties, which again, like most of the people will not expect right. from a warm yeah. considered country as a Spain. Yeah. So uh, if we talk about just just for a moment going back to the traditional cava grapes and are those planted a little bit lower elevation and a little closer to the sea? What are they again? They're Charello, Charello, Macabeo and Parallada. Parallada. Um, actually, uh, Macabeo and Charello, you will find it in the mid region. That okay. means that they go from 200 to 500 meters high. Um, where the humidity is not as high as on, like in the coast. So normally on the coastal side, we grow more uh, muscat, shiraz, so grape varieties which are more Mediterranean, adapted more to a warmer climate and more resistant to the humidity. Again, in the central, it's where we will find the macabeos and the charelus. And then in the upper vineyards, it's where we find the parallada because the parallada is actually a pretty uh, cold climate grape variety. And it's actually the latest one to be picked up in the case of the white grape varieties. Yeah. Can you tell us, uh, those are grape varieties that are pretty um, little known here. So can you kind of break down what each of those varieties gives to the, um, gives to the wine and what flavors are kind of coming through and how, and how it's, this might be a part of a longer conversation, but how it's different from champagne? Which we all love. Yeah, we all love <laughs> champagne, <laughs> but we all love from now on also cava. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> um, actually, um, it's very it's similar actually to the champagne with their three main grapes as well. Right. So Macabeo basically will be more used uh, for the flavors profile. So it will give you more like peach and a little bit of apple as well flavors. It's not very full-bodied grape. It doesn't have a very high acidity. So it's basically for their nice nice flavored uh, that, that that brings to the blend right. and it's and 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 macabeo is called viura in in the rioja in the region. rioja region you, the, the spaniards make it so hard uh, for us learning about wine <laughs> oh come on it's very easy yeah. <laughs> there is worse places right sure okay so charello charello is the structure so charello will be like our chardonnay in the case of the champagne it's what it basically it's the column it's the structure on a cava the backbone maybe the backbone yeah. exactly and then uh, Parallada, it's the finest. A lot of people actually, when they talk about Parallada, since it's a cold climate grape, a lot of people think that it has a very high acidity, but actually it's not truth. So it's a very uh, medium to low acid grape, but it, it brings a lot of freshness and elegance. Yeah. 
Yeah, wonderful. So, um, so, but but that those are the traditional cava grapes. But Torres um, has not, you know, they're in the upper Penedes and 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 don't make so many uh, so much cava production. Although they do have uh, potentially one coming out. Can we talk? Uh, can we just mention that? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, we have like a little secret coming okay. up. Um, yeah, it has been just released in Spain, yeah. and uh, yeah, and it's going to be a surprise. Okay. It's, let's call it the surprise, a bubbly surprise. Sounds That's good. so far what I can say right okay. now. <laughs> Very good. So what what did Torres kind of start out doing? What, what so it, he started in that region, and now we should say that he has uh, expanded to um, all over Spain and all over the world. He's got a, a, a winery in Chile. He's got um, he's making wine in a lot of different places. So, but what what did he kind of start his um, there in the Penedès, and what was the family growing there, and and what was you know really successful? Yeah, actually, like. I think it's like in all families, every generation, they want to do their own project. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also main reason why the success they have, obviously. And uh, actually, the first generation was the first one like starting to produce uh, wines, but talking about the late 19th century, uh, it was more like bulk wines that were sent actually starting in Cuba, because Torres has a really close history with Cuba that most people doesn't know. And okay. we, we can talk about that in another day, because it's... <laughs> Over a hundred years of history wow. gives you for a lot of talking. Right. Second generation is the one actually that starts to distillate back in 1920 uh, using the Charentes method, which is basically the same like the cognac. Uh, third generation. Uh, can we can we, can we uh, elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, um, of course. So, so you know, a lot of people don't realize that you know Spain makes a, 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 so much brandy, and and so they the second generation they they started the distilled spirits program, and um, what grapes were they using for that? Is that is that kind of the typical Ayren? And and a lot of people don't know the word the grape Ayren, but it's the most widely planted grape in Spain that you've never heard of, but uh, it's um, it goes into a lot of brandy. Yeah, no, Ayren it's more knowing uh, to be. Use it's a great variety that comes from La Mancha, right. um, and it's more used in the south in the brandy from Jerez. While we are brandy from Panadés, so we work with the local grapes Macabeo, Charello, and Parallada. Okay. We pick up them when they are a little bit green because to produce a brandy you need a lower alcohol wine with a higher acidity, and yeah. obviously. Even if we have some vineyards which are colder, we still a warmer Mediterranean region. Right. And uh, and for the high ends, they use also French grape varieties, which actually it's surprising that we have Ugni Blanc and Fol Blanc right. in uh, in the Penedès wine region. So it depends a little bit on the brandies, uh, but the the most known ones from Torres uh, it's uh, the Torres Ten, and it's Macabeo, Charello, Parallada, and then the Twenty and Jaime Primero, which is a very high end one. It's more like the French grape varieties. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, okay. So, so third generation then. So second generation Torres was the was the brandies and third generation. Third generation. It's actually the first one starting the business with us together. Oh. So we're talking about after the second world war, the business of wine. It's very difficult because obviously France it's invaded by the Nazis and everything has been bombed. Right. And yeah. And uh, actually, he is the one that comes to us and starts uh, the import, uh, export, pro- uh, 
the exportation of our wines to to here to this market and he was like more about like traditional grape varieties more uh, focusing on Carignanas on Garnachas on Tempranillos on these uh, grape varieties so that was kind of during the the um, and during the Guerra Civil right the, the Civil War uh, it was that his motivation for coming to the US that, uh, you, that it was it a was... little bit later actually but you know it took a few years obviously okay. to to recover for what he had happen in Europe. Right, 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 right. Okay, cool. So then we have the fourth generation. What what was there? Um... Fourth generation, it's uh, an amazing generation, obviously, like to break all the rules. And uh, it's the one actually starting to introduce the international grape varieties in Spain. Uh, starting with uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, thanks to Miguel Agustin Torres, we have also Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, and a lot of different graves again that most of the people will never expect right. in, to have in Spain. Wow! Wow! Okay, so th- so that's very interesting, and we'll we're going to delve into some of these regions and where where the grapes are being planted uh, as we kind of progress through the show. Um, so finish us off. So <laughs> yeah, the fifth the generation, generation. <laughs> is, is Miguel, right? Yeah, Miguel. Um, he is actually the one also that realized that in order to be the ambassadors of Spanish wine, uh, we needed to have a Rioja and we needed to have a Ribera del Duero and a Rueda wine. So he's basically the one expanding the winery and starting to produce small uh, boutique wines outside of Catalonia, but this time inside of Spain, because the fourth generation is also the one that decides to go to Chile. We were the first European winery being in Chile. Wow, wow. And then, and and so how does that work? You know, I think there's now a lot of international wineries with, you know, winemaking teams that uh, that, that send their, their teams to go make wine in different countries. How does it work for Torres? I mean, it's convenient that uh, in Chile, of course, there's a similar language and, um, and it also helps that the harvest is uh, the opposite uh, time of year. So uh, fall in the Northern hemisphere and then it's fall in the Southern hemisphere, but that's more more in the March, April uh, time frame. And so does the whole winemaking team go down to Chile? Oh, no, no. They They're... are extremely busy. So we have different teams uh, depending on the project. We have our own team down in uh, Chile. We have our own team also in Rioja, in Rivera, and obviously in the Penedes or in the Catalan vineyards. Okay, cool. So it's there's just too much work to, to actually have. Uh, well, this is yeah. what they say. This is what they say. <laughs> Yeah, they're just probably, you know, hanging out in the cellars, drinking wine all day. I never say that. <laughs> I have a great relationship with all of them. I would like to keep the things like that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, okay, well, well, great. And, and then, um, so fourth generation went to Chile, and then Miguel said we needed to be more, um, have a presence in the various regions in, uh, in Spain. Um, he's also uh, moved, and he has a few projects with real indigenous grape varieties, right? Is that kind of part of that philosophy as well? Yeah, actually, this is a project that started the fourth generation, Miguel Agustin. Um, he, he thought that like trying to recuperate those grapes that disappeared with the phylloxera could be possible, even if most of the people didn't realize that and maybe thought that he, he was kind of crazy trying to do that. But uh, it's what he wanted to do. So he started back at the, at the end of the 70s, the start of the 20s, uh, in a very easy way. I think sometimes the best, uh, the best ideas are very simple. So he just put an advertisement in the newspaper saying that if anyone had like an old vine, 
uh, or what he thought that it was a laurel vine, he could bring us a piece, a sample, a piece of branch, and we will run a genetic studio to to try to determine which grape variety it was. Obviously, uh, we receive a lot of branches, all more than 500 actually, and we run wow. the studios for free in all of them. And uh, five of them, we couldn't find any information in the whole world. So we share those uh, genetic studios with the rest of laboratories in the world. No one had any match. Wow. So we decide to reproduce them with in vitro system, which is extremely complicated. And, um, and we reproduce them in a very small quantities in order to see how the grapes were, if they were good or not for winemaking. Right. And actually two of them were showing like incredibly uh, um, characteristics for the winemaking. So, and this project has been continued also from the generation. So now right. it's Mikel in charge uh, together with Mireia, his sister. And uh, until nowadays we have found like more than 30 grape varieties that everybody thought were extremely, like they were disappeared because of yeah. the phylloxera eating all of them. <laughs> right. So, I mean, this is, I think, hard for, you know, a lot of folks, I think, in the U.S. to wrap their head around just because it's like you go into a wine shop and there's a finite number of uh, grape varieties that they make wine out of. And especially, you know, everybody knows Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Merlot. Um, but in, in, in Europe and throughout history, there's hundreds and hundreds of grape varieties that... Um, people might not even know what the names are or they might not even have names. So that was what this yeah. situation was. So then Phylloxera, you know, kills almost all of the vineyards in Spain and it was the the wineries had to make the decision to replant, right? And so they just didn't decide to replant or they didn't know that they had these grape varieties. Is that is that... Uh, yeah, nobody knew that these grape varieties uh, for certain reasons... Um, save their cell from the phylloxera like as you say like phylloxera exterminate almost all the vines not just in spain almost in all europe right um it's also the case of the carmener from from france and from chile a grape that disappeared from france because of the phylloxera but before that was brought to chile on the 16th century right. and until back at the 80s nobody knew that carmener stills alive in chile right so sometimes is that it's i guess that's the beautiness in the wine world no this kind of surprises right. and uh what we have been doing is basically that like trying to find these vines uh, some years we are very lucky we find two of them some years we are not that lucky we don't find any because it's so difficult are, are they just in people's backyards i mean or do they have kind of smaller vineyards i mean you know what percentage of the population in that area do you think they have their own little family plot of vineyard is it almost everybody has their little family plot of vineyard? Yeah, almost everybody, but it's not really how you find them. Um, since the phylloxera was uh, ex like was extremely extended in all the vineyards and in all the land, uh, those vineyards are basically, or those vines, because sometimes it's just one vine that you find, they are in the middle of a forest or, yeah, oh, really? like in the most random places where the phylloxera didn't have access to. <sighs> And that's, that's and the, the most amazing thing is that sometimes they don't even look like a vine because, as you know, like we need uh, to treat the vines, we need to do the pruning and everything, right. not just in order to have new branches every year, in order to give a form to the to the tree. Yeah. So you have to imagine a, a vine which is over a hundred 
years uh, and has been a band up there and living wild doesn't look like a vine anymore. It's like if we didn't cut our hair for 100 years, <laughs> we might not even look like a human being. Right, right. So, and, and that's why, like, most of, most of them... They are there almost dying and it's just one abandoned in the middle of the forest and nobody wow. knows anymore that's even a vine. So that's why it's so beautiful to find one of those. Yeah. And and what are these? And you've tasted the um, the these varietals that that have now been they've been cultivated. You know, they probably went to a nursery to see if they were viable and then they were planted. Um what what are are they tastes that that are similar to the international varieties or um, how would you kind of describe these are are they are they wild flavors are they flavors you've never had before <laughs> you know um, yeah actually it's every time it's different to com to compare different grapes sure. uh, for example one of the my favorites my personal favorite is the Carol because it's extremely extremely weird it has a very very small uh, um, berries, extremely mm -hmm. small berries, no seeds, and it's so delicate that during the harvest, if you just go walking through the vineyards, those berries fall down. Wow. So it's extremely difficult to harvest as well. But since it's pure concentration of skin and just a little amount of juice, it gives you a very high acidic and tannic wines with a beautiful ripe fruit. Right. Um, to compare this grape with other grape varieties, it's difficult because it's so unique um, that comparing yeah, will be not hard. fair at yeah. all. Now, now Torres actually gave the the winery gave the name to all of these, right? They just didn't have a name. So, how did they come up with the names of these grapes that were just lost and found? Yeah, actually, this is a very, very extremely long process. It's yeah. uh, very difficult to give a name to a new grape variety. In the case of Carol, uh, Carol is actually a town in Lleida, in Custes del Segre, which is another dio inside of Catalonia. And it's basically the name of the town where that vine was found. Okay. In other cases, we give the name um, to the people that actually brought us uh, the first branch, like oh, the cool. case of the first grape we ever found, the Garro and the Sanso. So it depends to case to case. But again, like trying to register a new grape, it's something extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. So is there, um, I know that, that there are kind of samples of uh, the, the grapes separate, but then they also, some of these grapes go into some of the wines that Torres actually makes and has in the market, right? Yeah, one of the wines uh, that we use actually, um, those grapes inside of the blend, it's the Grands Muralles. It's actually the end of the project why recuperating these uh, ancestral grapes. So Mr. Torres, the fourth generation, he decided to make a unique wine in the world made with a Catalan indigenous grapes. Right. So that's why he decided to grow Garnacha, Cariñena and Monastrell, also mm -hmm. known as Monvedra. And then uh, the first blend was with Garro and uh, Samso. And since 2009, uh, we are using the Garro and the Carol in the blend. So, so. the two indig indigenous grapes. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and I had the, the great fortune of trying these wines this summer and... Um, just, I, I was very, very impressed. So, I mean, it's, it's a really well job, well, job well done. Um, 
Well, we, we, we need to take a short break cool. and we need to hear, <laughs> we need to, I'm, I'm very much enjoying this conversation. I love Spanish wine and I love the wines of Catalonia. We're going to dig deeper into some of the other regions, Rioja and the Ribera del Duero and uh, maybe Rias Baixas when we return. So uh, stay tuned and you're listening to Co-op Radio, KOOP 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. We'll be right back after these short messages. Support comes from Tesla Electric Incorporated, a full-service electrical contracting company located in Austin, serving the Central Texas area for commercial, industrial, high-tech, medical, residential needs, and more. You may find more information at teslaelectricinc.com. All right, this is another bottle down, and uh, we're talking Spanish wine here. My name is Mark Rayshap, and I'm here with Marta Delfa Media Villas. Uh, she's from the region of Penedes, and that's where uh, the winery that she is now working for, uh, Torres, uh, is based. And they have uh, wineries all over Spain and in Chile. Uh, they make distilled spirits as well. Uh, still family-owned, five generations, and um, making all kinds of wine. Uh, Marta, again, thank you for being here. And uh, so we talked a little bit, you know, we talked about cava. We've talked about um, some of the, the, the indigenous grapes that are found found in uh, Catalonia area. When, so um, Miguel kind of thought, oh, I need a Rioja sort of, uh, property. So um, tell us a little bit about Rioja. And and I think that a lot of folks think Rioja when they think Spanish wine here. Um, so was that, that was like, okay, I need to be in the Napa Valley of Spain to a certain extent? Uh, yeah, actually, it's not just here, it's worldwide. It's obviously the most known wine region in Spain, and right. it's a beautiful region. So definitely when we thought, okay, we we need a little bit more in order to represent all Spain. So the first thing we thought was about going to Rioja. Yeah. So we produce a wine there, which is 100% Tempranillo. Yeah. Uh, in Rioja, the main grape variety, uh, it's the Tempranillo. And then in the case of the white, it's the Viura that we were talking before. Yeah. And then we... 100% Viura? Uh, no, we don't have any any white wine so far. Oh, okay. We just right, right, have right, right, right. Uh, the Crianza, okay. which is the Tempranillo. And then uh, other grape varieties that they grow, and they are very interesting, is also the Graciano, which it's maybe more coming to the market that yeah. we don't have so far, a Graciano. Right. So so Graciano is a, a good complement and a, usually a blending grape to Tempranillo. Or are you seeing 100% uh, Gracianos coming out as well? Um, 100% Gracianos are catching up more and they are getting more popular, but definitely has been historically a great grape for uh, for blending. But the reason is uh, where the Tempranillo was coming from. So everybody thinks about Rioja, but actually Rioja can be extremely diverse as well. It's right. divided in three subregions. Uh, and Tempranillo is a grape that tends to lack on acidity. <laughs> so depend when you harv- where you harvest the tempranillo, you might need something to enhance that acidity, and that's perfect with the Graciano, which right. is a very wild grape. Very wild, right? And for those students of wine out there, um, the three subregions of Rioja are Rioja Baja, 
uh, Rioja Alta and Rioja Alavesa. Correct. The part that's in the province of Alava. I still remember a few things from, from being out there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so so where is the, the Tempranillo that's going into the Torres, Rioja? Is that coming from uh, any particular subregion or kind of from all over? No, we just uh, normally deal with uh, grapes from Rioja Alavesa. That's why we can do uh, 100% Tempranillo without needs of blending because uh, since this is a region where you get a little bit more colder climates and older vines, which is very important, uh, then you have an, e- an extremely good Tempranillo that you don't need to blend. But sometimes uh, the challenge in Rioja, and especially those regions where they pick up the grapes a little bit later, is that the rain can come during the harvest season. Right, right. And as you know, that that's never good. Right. So then it's when we might deal a little bit of uh, with Tempranillo from Rioja Baja, but normally it's uh, just Rioja La Besa. Very cool. Um, have you ever participated in that wine festival called uh, the Battle of Wine, La Batalla del Vino? No. Um, <laughs> I would love to, actually. I would love to. It's, I think, something that's not very well known here. I think a lot of people know the Tomatina, which is uh, where everybody throws tomatoes at each other. But in Rioja, they have a, a festival where they throw wine at each other. They <laughs> wear all white and throw wine at each other. It must be amazing. <laughs> okay, so cool. So, uh, and, and is that wine that that Torres produces um, j- just under the Torres label, Torres Rioja? It's uh, the name of the wine, it's Ibericos. Ibericos. Well, Ibericos, as you, well, right. most of the people call it Ibericos here. Okay. But I'm a Spaniard, so I need to say Ibericos. Ibericos, okay. And, uh, and yeah, that's, the, uh, that's the, the wine. You can find it around. Infra- and yeah, so it, available in the Austin market and um, and also it, we can go get information on it at torres.es. Um, we'll, you'll have all kind of the, the scientific and all of the detailed information. Um, cool. So after Rioja, he um, was there an expansion? Didn't, was Ribera del Duero next? Yeah, Ribera del Duero, correct. So, so that would probably be, you know, another region that, that, that uh, people think of for high quality Spanish wine worldwide, right? Now, Ribera del Duero hasn't been super well known for as long as Rioja, but I think that people have um, really started to embrace it because of the power. Can you just kind of generalize Ribera del Duero? Do you think of that? Do you think of it as a more powerful version of Tempranillo? Yeah, definitely. First of all, the reason, uh, the reason maybe why it's not so known like Rioja, because it, Rioja is the oldest uh, wine region in Spain, the first one being um, qualified. Um, while Ribera del Duero is a pretty new DO if we talk about Spanish wines, because it right. was uh, fundated back in 1982. Which so is very it's, recent. It's very recent. Yeah. And uh, definitely you're completely right about uh, comparing uh, wines from Rioja and Rivera. Rivera, it tends to be more bold and more richer, more fruit forward, yeah. uh, but also very nice for aging wines and yeah. also the great varieties Tempranillo. So I always like uh, try to to try side by side to, to, to let the people realize how different it can be like the same grape growth yeah. in two hours distance and that's the beauty now no? where we talk about terroir about history um, when you try it side by side both wines then it's when you see like 
wow, how, yeah, how yeah. is that possible? But obviously it's a warmer climate, it's more continental climate, so extremely hot during the day, extremely cold during the night, very, very hot and dry summers and uh, cold winters. Yeah. So that's why the Tempranillos there ripe and develops like more black fruit, yeah. higher tannic structure, but thanks to the cold nights, also higher city. So bigger, bolded yeah. wines. Is, is the Torres Rivera del Duero um, 100% uh, Tempranillo? Or, or you might see Tinta del País or, um, or uh, Tinta Fina? Tinta Fino. Tinta Fino, yeah. Tinta del País or Tempranillo, it's the same grape. And right. yes, it's 100% that comes from very high elevation vineyards. Uh, from Rivera del Duero and uh, very old vines. So yeah. we basically have vineyards there which are 80 and even older vines because it's curious when you when you ask the farmers when those vineyards were planted, they are 80 and they say like, I think when I was born, my grandfather planted. So it's pretty challenging yeah, to identify. How, exactly. I, I think that's remarkable. You don't even know how old the, the vineyards are and you have to be anecdotally saying, uh, you know, I think that this was planted when I was born. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Do, the, do then, you know, the winemakers treat the Rioja and the Ribera del Duero differently? Do you age the Ribera del Duero a little bit longer? Um, typically the thinking is, is the bigger and the bolder, the longer it has to age before it's kind of approachable and ready. No, actually that's again, one of the curiosities, like being such a diverse wine, the winemaking process, it's pretty similar. So both are Crianza. Uh, that means an aging between uh, 12 to 18 months in oak barrels. And uh, both are actually aged for 12 months and both are aged in a French and American oak. So it's it's incredible how the same grape age in the same barrels for the same amount of time can be that different. Oh, so so it, it's really a study on terroir and how different the soils create the wines and, mm-hmm. and all of the, the characteristics, weather and everything. And I think that that's why we're all in the in the wine business because it's so it's so mystical in in a way. Yeah, it is. <laughs> cool. So so then, um, what was next? Uh, was it Rueda next, or was it Rias Baixas? The next was Rueda. Actually, the order was Priorat, Ribera del Duero, Rioja, and then Rueda okay. and Rias Baixas. Okay. Well, well, let's talk uh, Rueda because we've talk, been talking about uh, Tempranillo, but um, Rueda is that little region west of Madrid that is uh, of, of the grape um, uh, Verdejo, right? Yeah. Rueda is an, an amazing wine region because it has two neighbors which produce, and they are known to produce very big, bolded red wines. Uh, one is uh, Ribera del Duero on the eastern side of Rueda, and the other one it's Toro on the western side of, of Rueda, both focusing on Tempranillos or Tinta de Toro and Big Bold, while Rueda being in between, it's 98% of the production white wines. White wine, yeah. And the main grape variety is the, the Verdejo. The Verdejo, I think it's a pretty cool grape. Um, I normally call the wines from Verdejo the porch pounders or patio pounders yeah. because yeah. That's, that's how... They are like you open a wine, it's fresh, it's aromatic, uh, but it doesn't have a very high acidity, also not low. So it's it's very nice drinking wine. Right, right. 
um, I kind of relate it in some ways to a softer Sauvignon Blanc, but but uh, sometimes we see Verdejo and Sauvignon Blanc being blended together these days, right? Is, are they putting Sauvignon Blanc in there to boost the acidity? Is that what they're doing? Yeah, actually, with the time, the the second most planted grape variety in Rueda is the Sauvignon Blanc because it develops grape there. Um, and yes, normally you can find some of the wines being blended with Sauvignon in order to enhance a little bit the acidity. But since we we focus more on the authenticity of each grape from each region, our Verdeo, which is the wine that we produce in uh, Rueda, is 100% uh, Verdejo. It also depends on the moment where you pick up the grapes. Because you were completely right, um, Verdejo is a grape that tends to share some similarities with Sauvignon yeah. Blanc. Right. So when you pick it up a little bit earlier or it's coming from a colder climate, we'll develop more that greener side without going to the green grass or fresh cutted grass like a Sauvignon. And when you work in a more riper style, then it develops that more uh, tropical flavors. But again, since the seed is not that high, the longer you ripe the grape, the lower it's going to be your acidity. Right. So when you try to produce a wine which is maybe more exotic on the nose, uh, made with a verdejo, then you need to enhance that acidity, blending it with Sauvignon. Right, right. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that um, wines from Verdejo are, are wonderful for this Austin climate and Texas climate. And uh, we certainly need our patio pounders. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so then Torres also makes uh, one of the other kind of iconic white wines uh, or most well-known white wines, the Albariño, right? So that is going to be on the coast in Galicia um, in that little part that's above Portugal on the peninsula. Yeah, Rias Baixas, a great wine region. It's located northwest from Spain, as you were saying, northern from Portugal. And their main grape variety is the Alvariño. Alvariño, it's an amazing grape. Uh, it has It's pretty similar on style to a dry Riesling. So I always like to compare uh, grape varieties with other grape varieties, which right. we are more um, knowing yeah. or friendly with. Yeah, um, because that help us to understand the style. So actually, uh, an Alvariño might be like a dry Riesling on the nose with a Sauvignon Blanc mouthfeel. So I have that crispy acidity from a Sauvignon Blanc, but it have that flavors uh, from a dry Riesling without the petrol side right. and adding a lot of saltiness, a lot of salinity because some of the vineyards are planted directly on the coast from the Atlantic Sea. So all this minerality goes through and obviously influence on the on the tasting profile of the Albariño. Right, right. Wonderful. And what, what's the Torres project uh, there in Rias Baixas called? We have a very, very small project that starts back in 2000. 2012, so it's really, really recent for right, us. Cool. And the name of the wine is Pazo das Bruxas, which means the house of the witches. <laughs> and this is basically because of all the history in Galicia related with all, all the witches, and uh, it's an extremely mythic area. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, uh, we, we missed it for Halloween. That would have been a perfect wine to have uh, with Halloween. Oh, <laughs> we can always rescue the yeah. costumes and drink some Alvarino. Right. I'm in for that. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, well, if you're just joining us, my name is Mark Grayship. It's another Bottle Down and uh, Co-op Radio, and we're talking with Marta uh, Mediavillas, and we're talking about Spanish wine, and, and she works for the, 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 the family-owned fifth-generation winery Torres. More information at torres.es. Uh, 
Um, well, we skipped over the Priorat, and that was it's one of my favorite regions. So let's let's briefly mention what Torres has going on in the Priorat, and uh, pro- that was probably the region that got me into the wine business. So yeah, Priorat it's a unique wine region in the world. It's one I always say to people that it's one of those regions that no matter how many vineyards you have seen, uh, you will never forget. Wow! Uh, yeah, yeah. Paint it, the picture for us. It's extremely, extremely small. It's actually surrounded by mountains, which is the Monsan Mountains, and then it's uh, pretty highly. So a lot of little mountains, a lot of little valleys, uh, very autochthonous, like uh, very small. We we don't even talk about subregions in Priorat. We talk about towns, right, yeah. towns where there is like thirty to fifty people living there in in winter. So imagine, so cool. and. Um, Soils are licorella, which is basically black slates and uh, very hard conditions. It is extremely hot, extremely dry. So though there, it's one of those regions where the vineyards really suffer. You don't need to stress them even more because they really have to look uh, to survive. So that makes that the yields, the, the amount of grapes they produce per vine, it's extremely reduced. So all these vines uh, have all the power just concentrating this little amount of grapes, which sometimes it's even one bunch of grape. So imagine normally you need in other more higher production regions like Rioja, uh, you can produce up to five bottles of wine per vine, while in Priorat you need up to four vines in order to produce one bottle. So it's, it's extremely that is that is just remarkable you know i mean that that is it's just wild that that there's so much land necessary to produce you know one one bottle of wine and um and and so and it also talks to the, how many variables there are in the vineyard and and uh and we don't get to really see that when we look at the bottle of wine we don't get to know everything of what happened to 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 make the wine inside um, what are the grape varieties that Priorat is most known for? Um, Priorat is basically known for their Garnacha, Cariñana, Shiraz in the blends as well. And in the case of the white, it's uh, basically white Garnacha. But it's a wine region that since it's so warm, again, 98% of the production is basically red wines. And even if Shiraz it's not an indigenous grape, it's almost considered also a part as a as right. a their normal blend. Right, right, right. Well, we're we're quickly running out of time. We need to take one uh, really short break, and we'll be back with some final thoughts uh, with Marta Mediavias from uh, Torres Winery. Uh, stay tuned. Stick with us, and we'll be right back. Support for Co-op comes from Lincoln Penn Gallery, an artist-led space that offers the community an environment to discover local art. The gallery is located at 2235 East 6th Street, Suite 102. More information is available at linkpenart.com. All right, we're back, and uh, we've got a few minutes left. Um, Marta, thank you again for being here. What, uh, what are I guess some final final thoughts? I mean, where do you see Spanish wine going? And you travel all around the U.S. is what uh, one of the things that you do, um, doing education with distributors and with retailers and restaurants all throughout the central part of uh, the United States. Is that what, or you go all over? 
I go all over. <laughs> I'm that lucky that I can go all over right, US. Right. But calling Austin your home. Yeah. yeah. So what what I mean, do you do you feel that there's a a, a, lo- a tremendous amount of interest in Spanish wine and uh, do you see any regions that are hotter than others right now or what po- folks are really looking for? Yeah, I definitely think uh, that the chances we have here, it's uh, growing because Spain is extremely diverse and we always talk about Rioja and Rivera, but actually there is 69 Dios, so there is still a lot of room to discover. And I think... And they, you feel folks like distributors and, and real industry uh, folks are really like, oh, I want that tiny region that I've never heard of before. I think we have to find the balance okay. uh, because if Rioja is that big, it's because they do amazing things. Right. Yeah. Um, and if other reasons uh, have to be discovered, sometimes it's also because they might not have the capacity to come uh, to a country which is extremely great and big like U.S. because if they produce a little amount, it's really difficult for them to to export it to other countries. So right. I think finding the balance, always like keeping in mind that uh, who is big, it's for a reason. Right. And it's because right. they do great things while also keeping an interest, trying to discover new things. And definitely Spain offer a, a wine for every plate. Yeah, yeah, and um, and similar with larger wineries. I mean, you you know, you're you're talking about this, and um, as far as like you know the the winery, I think in the industry we we try to shun large wineries, and it's like oh you know you must be ignoring quality if you're making so much wine, uh, but but that's not always the case either. We have to stay reminded of that, and that a large winery has a lot of resources to you know make small plots and and and, and do things I mean and to a certain extent Torres is in that situation where they they make a lot of of wine uh, but then they have these these focused brands and these focused you know uh, vineyards and and wines that are extremely high quality do you yeah, see that I, I completely agree I completely agree we have uh, wines for everybody for the people that want more common things to uh, more smaller and unique um, wines I mean you there, I don't think there is any more unique wine than Grands Muralhas made with yeah. grapes that disappear after the phylloxera. So ancestral grapes, grapes that have been there forever and right. nobody knew that they exist again. And I think it's very important to to know that. that Yeah, to, to push, to be able to have the resources to really push the boundaries. Exactly. Yeah. And the chances they give, like uh, all our winemakers, they yeah. are very fortunate to work for Torres, as I am as well. And I have some friends who are winemakers for smaller wineries, and they say, like, what I do, it's easy. <laughs> like, do 2,000 of bottles, and great, it's easy. But easy. to do, like, that amount, and all of them, great. Yeah. And uh, I would like to mention that Torres uh, got the award of being the most admired winery in the world. Yeah. Uh, two years in a row, and we have been this most admired winery in Europe six years in a row. Wow. And this is an award that it's given by sommeliers and for by wine experts. So I don't think all these people is wrong. Right, right. Uh, Marto, we got to wrap up. We're, we're, we got to make room for uh, Tracy Schultz and Remix. Thank you again for being here. Good luck with all of your travels. Uh, and maybe we can bring you into the, the studio again sometime. Yeah, thank you very much for this great opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I had a, a, a wonderful time, a blast. Uh, this is uh, Another Bottle Down. My name is Mark Grayshap. Uh, we have run out of time. We'll see you next week. Uh, have a wonderful week. Go out and vote and uh, get out the word and, uh, and love on somebody. <laughs>